years we have dwelt in the shadows, applying our skills and knowledge in secret, speaking our truth to all who would listen, applying our trade for those in need. Now it is time to emerge into the light, wipe our eyes of dust, and venture forth into the world. Make ourselves known, and invite all who seek our secret knowledge to work and learn with us. Welcome friends and fellow seekers to the Secret Society of the Instructional Designer. Travel with us auditorily as we explore the work and practice of our humble society. We begin with a discussion from some of our illustrious members, move into an interview from a practitioner of our art, and then finish with one of our most venerated traditions, a question from the question hat. So sharpen your pencils, open your notebooks, and align your learning objectives to the secret society of the instructional designer. Hey everybody, and welcome to our little podcast, the Secret Society, the Secret Society of the Instructional Designer. Um, I think every week, as I try and stumble through that, I am going to regret that this is the name we chose. But it took forever to to land on it, so we're not changing it. I I am Nick Noel, and I am joined by my friend and uh, associate uh, instructional designer colleague, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, Rachel Stern Lockerman. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Nick. Hi, everybody joining us for in podcast land, wherever you get podcast. <laughs> I, do, I don't I like the idea of a podcast land. It, the problem is, is there'd be like one like Iron Curtain like country where Joe Rogan lives and it would be kind of depressing. Um, so maybe we so will like visit it. kind of like in the Ready Player One where each universe has its own like island or yeah. planet. So like there's the the learning island and then there's you know the um the prince island the island dedicated to prince and then I think there's Nintendo How World. What podcasts do you think are dedicated to prince? I don't know. I mean more than I'm one. sure there are some. I'm sure it's more than one. But maybe I don't know if it's their own planet. I also like that that was your go-to. <laughs> like, you know, learning and prince, the two things that people talk about. That is there. Uh, the problem with that book or series is that, like, it was very clearly written from one guy's perspective and the things Wait, that he was obsessed with. What is Prince to you? The singer. Okay. What book, then, are you talking I about? I said Ready Player One. Oh, Ready Player One. Okay. The book where yeah. there's, like, the yeah. VR universe and instead yeah. of it being, like, thought, different websites. I had gotten confused and I thought... I was thinking of the singer Prince and there was some book series called Prince that you were aware of that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. With ready player one. Yeah. That was a very much, you know, 40 something year old white guy perspective of the world. Exactly. So that, but for podcasts, I mean, that's also unfortunately what a lot of podcasts are. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a medium dominated by uh, dudes in their thirties and forties. True um, crime podcasts would definitely be an empire that. of podcasts. Yeah. They would they would have multiple like little tributary countries like and all be ruled by one one strong serial leader. Um although maybe not. Maybe my favorite murder is the biggest one now. I don't know. It's literally a TV show about true crime podcasts though. I like, love how we've when come full circle. Yeah, it's it's like, hey, uh, we're going to 
Well, because they started to, they have radio shows that are now podcasts and people may not even know that they're also radio shows. So like, I wonder if you ask people, like most people, did you know that this American life is a radio show? They wouldn't, they'd be like, what's the radio? <laughs> um, anyway, today uh, we've got some fun stuff planned. We've got an interview as always. We've got uh, some questions from the question hat. But um, I wanted to start with uh, kind of a, a thing we were talking about before we started recording. That's kind of like fads and in instructional design and how we sometimes pivot or integrate all these new and emerging technologies. And then they end up not going anywhere. So I'm wondering if we're like, or you were wondering, like, you know, do we waste our time? Is there a point or value in doing this? Um, I don't know. Like, what can you think of the like? What was the least the last example of something like that? So the current example, the big thing on the market is uh, generative AI. This is yeah. it's going to destroy college English. It's going to destroy higher education. Um, it's going to destroy assessment. And um, you know, I've been around the block at, at least once, and I've heard this several times that this is going to be what destroys college. And I'm, I haven't seen it happen. So like I've, I'm very curious to see like why these massive changes that they say are going to be like, this is the most impactful thing to ever happen, never actually change things in the major way they think. And like you said, Nick, before, uh, sometimes they just, you know, are integrated and like now we use a lot of them or, you know, they just kind of dissipate and they're not actually that useful or impactful once the shine of the ooh, shiny new toy wears off. Yeah, you know, there's, So I wonder if sometimes it's it's like marketing hype where they're like, you know, this is gonna totally revolutionize the world. Like we were talking about MOOCs, um, which I think is kind of the classic example because I think it's the most recent one that had people kind of nervous where it was this convergence of all these technologies and abilities, you know, where we'd had higher storage capacities and higher, you know, internet speed. So we could finally deliver high quality video, you know, on demand and, you know, store it relatively cheaply. So we had like all of these, like, you know, video based courses on these new um, massive on what are they even called? Massive open online class courses. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people were really worried, like, oh, people will just do these. These are cheaper. They're going to do this instead of uh, going through uh, higher ed or going through like a college degree or something. And, you know, that it's been 13 years or so since that started. And that hasn't really panned out. And it also hasn't even materialized as a, at least to my mind, a competitor. Now, that could be that there are smaller colleges that felt that more that people who would have gone to a community college or would have gone to a smaller um, state school or something like that decided to do MOOCs instead. But I just think in general, like those things were so prohibitively expensive that people weren't going to go there over. They weren't ever going to go there to begin with. And the people who chose a MOOC, like they may go to this and and do that but i don't think that they were going to 
ever go to the college instead of doing the the, the movie. Does that make sense? Like, I don't yeah, know if the audience like, is really there to take. So I think another problem was is that they'd be like, oh, so we recorded a class at Harvard and now everyone can have Harvard. Congratulations to the world. And that really just like, I'm, I'm surprised it gained such traction and that Harvard kind of let it use that as their advertisement for, I think it was edX, considering mm -hmm. that the value of an education at Harvard is not just the content, it's the communication, it's the collaboration, it's more than just some, the words you're listening to. Some might say that almost none of the value of going to Harvard is the, compared to like the networking and all those opportunities and, and the meeting with like, and, and conversing with like people in your field and things like that. Like the content is actually a very small percentage of the value of going to a school like that. Exactly. And the, the, you know, just super affordable tuition payments. <laughs> um, so um, I remember back, back then, like um, I work for a city university, which has, you know, just vast budgets to spend on everything. <laughs> there was serious con consideration of investing in a MOOC platform and um, because we already had the content and if that was really what the be all end all of a MOOC was then it shouldn't be such a leap to get it to get it online and um, once we discussed the cost more and like really saw waited and saw the value and the impact we were just like oh it's good that we did not invest any in this but like the original perception was that everyone is going to have to make a MOOC to make themselves viable. Mm -hmm. um, and now I wonder, is the same thing happening with um, generative AI? Is everyone's going to have to adapt to generative AI to make themselves viable? Um, or is it just going to be another thing that a faculty member needs to be aware of? Because at the moment, generative AI still does not produce good content. It produces acceptable content and it still has significant problems with hallucination. Um, but the main challenge I see with generative AI with my faculty is not that it is producing bad content. It's that if you have a 60 student, 120 student class, are you really going to have the cognitive load to really parse out, is this poorly written or is this just generative AI? Because if I did not write it as the human, me giving comments in the margins about the problems is not actually going to fix there because the student did not write it. They're not going to really know how to integrate those comments to fix those problems. So like that's the, the scale is really what concerns yeah, I, me. I think the things like, like, the, the generative AI stuff is is really exposing, um, and we talk about uh, talking about in, in higher ed, and I know that not every instructional designer works in, in higher ed, um, and I'm sure that there are concerns that look at more if you look at the corporate or government side, um, but that's my main experience, so <laughs> that's what I'm dealing with. Um, but it, like I think what it exposes is this thing that we've actually been talking about for decades is the amount of students that instructors are required to interact with in order for the organization to find enough, you know, value or profit in that course is getting to, and in some ways is probably exceeding the like actual ability to in meaningfully interact with each one of those students. And you know, um, this is this this reminded me of something that happened in high school, um, where m one of my friend we were given an essay assignment, and one of my friends 
just to see what would happen, um, turned in his like five page essay, but stapled together two pages, like in the middle. So you could look at the first couple pages and like the end page. Um, but the stuff in the middle, like you had to, if you wanted to actually read it, you had to open it up and he got it back with the staple still intact with an A. So like, it's clear that that wasn't read. And I think there is a feeling that like some of the stuff that you're submitting isn't being read very, you know, fully. And it's not just, you know, I'm not saying that instructors aren't doing their best. I think this is more of a student perception and in some cases, it's not an inaccurate perception. There just isn't as much time as you want to be able to dedicate to reading everything that a student's submitting. And I think the AI thing is just exacerbating that already established issue. Yeah. Um, so something that I've um, I've been working with our English department. That makes me think of what um, we've been doing with our English department. We've been working with our English department specifically to teach students about generative AI and how to use it effectively, but like to understand that nobody is combing through their essay with a fine tooth comb. And when they get to jobs or professional careers, no one's going to be combing through reports they read with a jet with a fine tooth comb. What matters is that they're effectively communicating in a clear and concise and um, descriptive way um, mm -hmm. what they're trying to write. So like kind of getting students to move beyond these like tricks. Like, and I have, I have faculty who say, like, I put in my 20-page syllabus a line that says, like, if you email me with a subject line, hi, uh, I found it in your syllabus, I'll give you $20. And it's never been claimed. And I was like, <laughs> but that's not how we read documents. That's not yeah. how we, we scan for information. And especially if you consider that they're probably reading this online, they're probably doing, like, Control-F or Command-F for my Mac people in the in our podcast land audience um, to find that I uh, know I need to know the grading policy. I need information on writing support, et cetera. So like, I think part of it is that we need to kind of have a change in perception that um, we have to expect students and faculty to be writing everything, assuming every word is being read with such a fine eye. The point is that you need to understand how to do it well so that you can write clearly and concisely. I will say like, you know, I don't know how much you remember about elementary and middle school and, and stuff like that. But... I have blocked that out as much <laughs> as possible. So so let's assume um, nothing. Me, me too, in, in a lot of ways. But like some things I do remember, which is like how much you are being prepped for standardized tests. Mm. Like and the way you're taught how to scan large bits of information is as if you're going to get a multiple choice question at the end of it and that's kind of like core to your reading comprehension training is like scan this document for relevant pieces of information because you don't actually have we want to account for you not having enough time to read everything and be able to finish this test so like i do wonder like how much of like that early formative um reading comprehension like assessment and and training is informing how people engage with like longer and more dense documents like i don't know no I, but i do remember those like i don't 
I don't know. I'm from, I'm in New York. Um, so I don't know how different the standardized tests are, but like horror flashbacks. So like, there'd be like a page that says, stop, do not go any further because <laughs> it was split across like three days. Mm-hmm. So like you had to spend a certain amount of time each day doing it. And then there was just like, stop. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, seven-year-old me was like, you know, if you turn the page, they're going to like come after you. The the New York Board of Education police is, they're going to, they're going to get you. Um, <laughs> but like, I remember thinking, you know, when I was young, like, what's the point of, of, like, I understand from a, a scale perspective, grading a bunch of kids, um, not in a non-automatic way is just not viable but at the same time like you said there's no multiple choice questions in life yeah so like why why is that such a formative part of school what are you talking about rachel every day i go to my job they give me a 50 question exam i take it uh then i go to lunch i come back there's a new 50 question exam and then i'm basically done for the day i don't know where those exams go or what they're used for but I just cash my checks and I'm done to, for the I'm done for the week. Do you make sure to bring your number two pencil? Yes, of course. And I have to fill in the bubbles completely. And if I uh, get a question wrong, you can't erase it. You have to put an X through it. Just so you know. I had um, I've had teachers who were so 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 they believed that students would definitely um, be erasing and like whatever is that they made students circle all of their answers with pen before they'd hand it in like after they bubbled it in then they had to circle the answers with pens so you couldn't just erase it which makes me think of erasable pens but also like this is just a weird thing because again (laughs) but i teach myself i teach 60 students and if i didn't have multiple choice tests i would literally i'm technically only paid for four hours a week three of which have to be instructional time yeah so like that one hour has to account for building the class, planning the class, communicating with students, grading, um, you know, making lectures, doing everything. It's just not physically possible. So unless they'd like to scale my class down to 20 people, um, which they're not going to do because, you know, money. Um, mm-hmm. And again, like I understand we we do not charge that much for tuitions. Like I understand it in a sense. But like at the same time, there is no multiple choice questions in life except mm-hmm. now i kind of want your job where i just show up and i bubble <laughs> in with my number two pencils go to lunch and then bubble in again it's it's a pretty easy job um <laughs> okay uh so i just i guess i kind of want to wrap up because uh you know we don't take too much time and we can talk about this this is a big topic so we can probably talk about it again um it'll be interesting i think to see this is this is now the second our second episode and we've talked about generative AI in both. So we can kind of put a timestamp on where we are right now, but it will be interesting to see what this looks like a year from now. Cause like, I think right now it's very hot and big because it's new and it's free. And when MOOCs were first starting, they were also having a much more generous revenue sharing model with the universities than a lot of them do now. And I think that's, at least to my mind, part of why they've cooled off a bit. And they also, at least for some of them, it's a much less attractive model for um, students in terms of like how they're paying for things. Um, So I think in the 
interest of generating as much revenue as possible, their impact on and disruptive nature kind of has been diminished. And I would wonder, like, as soon as somebody's like looking at ChatGPT or, or any of these other generative AI things and is like, okay, how are we going to make more money off of it? What's our licensing fee going to be to like Microsoft or Google? Um, how are we going to like, you know, we've built up enough, you know, information. We want to start charging for this service for people. Is that going to, you know, diminish it like it has for potentially other, other tools? Um, I don't know. This is going to be an adventure, but again, <laughs> I'm, I'm wary because I've just been through so many. And then I remember they said predictive anal analytics is going to be the bit next thing to like, Mm -hmm. disrupt AI higher education so like I'm just I'm just wary so again you know mark it in the calendar 2024 uh or whatever a year from whenever this episode gets published um we will check back in and we will see how disruptive was AI generative text so either yeah we'll check in or our AI avatars that we have assigned the task of recording the podcast will check in for us exactly In this episode, we have a very special guest interview with my good friend, learning designer, Kate Mitchell. Kate is based in Australia, so who knows what time or day it was when we interviewed, but I think you will really love this episode. Be sure to check out ways that you can get in touch with Kate in the show notes and explore some of Kate's favorite online resources also in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get on with it. All right. Hello, Kate Mitchell. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the podcast. And yeah, I'm just going to kick it off. Can you tell us about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me, Claire. Uh, I, I'm uh, I'm a learning designer, which is, I guess, the equivalent of an instructional designer for people in the US. I have been doing it for probably close to a decade now or maybe a little bit longer if you count other roles that are similar, but I've been in education for probably two decades. I started off doing film and TV as my original background in another life, and then was doing kind of media support roles and got into this work. So I'm probably actually answering another question about what brought me to instructional design now, but I've been working in this field and working in education and I was a teacher, um, prior to that in TAFE, vocational education and secondary. So I've kind of had a bit of a windy history in education and in tech, and that's where I am now. I have a daughter. I live in Melbourne, Australia, and uh, I've been trying to really, I guess, support the space where I can in terms of mentoring and uh, building a little bit more visibility of the field so, but uh, we know each other from lots of different spaces and I'm sure we'll get into that. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks again so much. Um, and thanks for helping me with the time zone logistics. Like I still need to check 25 times. Is this the right time and day in Australia? And it's still, I don't know, I can't wrap my brain around it. So I'm very glad we're here today, whatever time, whatever day it is. <laughs> and <laughs> Um, what you described about that winding road or the career that you've been on, I have 
have kind of a similar story. And I think maybe that's why we're friends. <laughs> and it's part of why I really wanted to talk to you today to get to know more about, you know, what brought you to instructional design. Um, but before we get there, I wanted to share with our listeners a little bit about how we met. And I think it was on Twitter, which saying that out loud at this time and age, you know, of Twitter, um, it has changed in recent months and it's not the same place it used to be. And so I'm on LinkedIn more. I know you are too. That's how we kind of wrangle the scheduling here. Um, but Twitter was really important for me and my professional development network. It's how I met you during the pandemic. I think I met you and Colin. Um, you are both teleadvisors in Australia. And, you know, I just remember being so grateful to connect with you, someone who was going through a very similar terrifying experience, the pandemic in a totally different part of the world. Um, and I'm very glad that we've been in touch since then. You've come to my two Zoom birthday parties since we met and Ooh. yeah, we're good friends. So I'm lucky to to have you here. <laughs> Me too. I, I really, oh, Twitter's been such a, a godsend through the pandemic, but also just in terms of my own professional development. I think it's just been such a great way to connect with other people. And particularly in Australia, I think there's still some areas we are really ahead in and others where we're just not. And I think especially around equity and inclusion, which are real passions for me, uh, America, you know, the US just seems to be a little bit more ahead in that department and they're having very different conversations in that space. Uh, there's also just real requirements around accessibility that we don't have to the same degree. And so being able to be in that space and hear from you and hear from others, like obviously um, I follow people like Karen Costa and Brenda Clark Gray, and uh, there's a whole host of people. And I just wouldn't get the same kind of understanding of what people are going through and uh, recognition of different frameworks and philosophies in terms of say trauma-informed teaching or um, you know, equity in pedagogy, uh, I wouldn't have necessarily had access in the same way and particularly just being able to hear from a diversity of voices, which I think is really important. It's just really opened up my world um, the same way that televisors really opens up my world in Australia through those networks where Australasia, which means we cover uh, other parts like New Zealand as well, and we try and be global, but obviously it has a very Australian bent to it. Uh, and for those who aren't aware, Teleadvisors is basically technology enhanced learning educational advisors. So that really covers educational technologists who are sometimes called instructional technologists, academic developers, or sometimes faculty developers as they're known, and uh, learning designers or educational designers or instructional designers. So it's really kind of trying to look at those roles that are, you know, sit in that, uh, we call it the third space third space roles so they're really between academic and professional or uh, faculty and administrative and they're often trying to meet the goals of the institution while also trying to support uh, academics goals as well as trying to support what we think is good learning and teaching and often sometimes those things are, are kind of at different odds with each other so having that network to really talk to other people get a sense of what are you doing in your institution where do you come from? What can we learn from other fields? How can we network better? Because often we're all on uh, short-term 
or unstable contracts and you need to move around and find networks because you may be looking for another job. So it's really good to just have those sorts of networks to, to feel, connect with, feel connected. Yeah, absolutely. And I could talk about that forever with you. And that might be a whole other episode because <laughs> um, I recently left one job and I started another uh, or I will start another one soon. Um, and it's entirely because of that network. So very glad that you're in my network and, you know, I've learned so much from you too. Um, but something that I don't know about you, or maybe you've told me and I've forgotten is the first kind of standard question that I'm going to kick us off with. So I'll ask you a few standard questions. And then we have a special question hat question towards the end that can be kind of a wild card. Um, and if wild card is a new term, it's, uh, yeah, it's just unexpected. So you don't know what you're going to get. You might get something related to instructional design, or you might get a question about potatoes and, Ooh. uh, before we hit record, I did ask you the potato question. So I think we're going to sneak it into this episode. Um, just remind <laughs> me if I forget. <laughs> but the first question is, what brought you to instructional design or learning design? I think like most people, it kind of happened a little bit by accident. I, as I mentioned before, I've come from film and TV and teaching. I fell into teaching because I was working as a support officer doing a lot of multimedia support and teaching students and but I was on terrible money and I was like I can go back and study for a year and earn twice the rate of pay I'm on now so why wouldn't I do that if I'm already effectively doing a lot of that job so the reality of teaching is a little bit different it's uh as I'm sure a lot of people in this field or elsewhere are ex-teachers or current teachers it's it's tough and I got out before the pandemic but it was it was incredibly full-on uh, and I I really needed to either change schools or change jobs completely change fields and so and for me at that time I you know apart from just the workload and uh, the stress around it I also was just feeling like I was moving further and further away from my original training fields and further away from being able to apply my specializations practically and being able to, uh, I also realized that I really love being able to support and mentor other teachers. So that was something that I was taking on informally in my role. And so I started to really look at, okay, well, what can I do in that space that maybe isn't teaching, but gets to, to draw on those aspects. And so that's when I moved into higher ed Originally, it was as a blended learning training and support coordinator, which was kind of like, I guess it, at that time, in learning designers and instructional designers didn't really exist, or we had kind of uh, e-learning developers or desktop publishers who would kind of take it on that role informally, but it wasn't really a field. Uh, but that was my first role, and that was very similar. It was uh, I was working in the IT team, uh, and. I was supporting the whole of the institution as one person doing a lot around training and supporting educational technologies, uh, trying to show people how to use them effectively for good practice, trying to then also support uh, institutional goals, especially while we're going through a massive transition project, getting in a new LMS learning management system and other technologies and being a bit of a uh, representative in terms of helping to write business requirements and offer advice and consultation in terms of how the tech should be built and put together and integrated. So I was doing a lot of that work. And then, uh, of course, like I've mentioned before, uh, 
we all got made redundant. <laughs> I got a lovely package out of it, but it meant that then I was looking for other work and they were trying at that point to, to really change my role to be more, more tech at that, at that um, institution. And I was very adamant about keeping the pedagogy in there. And so I started to look around and then sort of just fell into learning design and have been in it ever since. So yeah, that role was really instrumental in terms of giving me the step in, but also doing kind of a lot of that similar work and recognizing the work. So it was probably a little bit more on the ed tech side, educational technologist type work, but uh, we all do a lot of that work anyway. So that's really how I got into it. It was kind of by accident, but still using all of the skills that I had previously in terms of education and teaching and media production. And so it's been a really good blend of all of those, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes so much sense to me because uh, my story is very, very similar. You know, I also got into it kind of accidentally. I remember interviewing for a learning management system administrator and trainer position at Columbia School of Professional Studies. And there were instructional designers on my interview panel. I'm like, what's that? And they explained it. And I asked something like, oh, you mean faculty don't design their own courses? And I think there were a few giggles. And, <laughs> you know, since then, I've been just really, really immersed in that world of educational technology, but leading more and moving ever so quickly or slowly <laughs> towards instructional design and kind of kind of working on the whole, the whole thing. So, you know, there's so much that we can bring to that role and that field based on our background and experiences. So I'm sure that all of your media expertise and your teaching has really helped you get to where you are today. And the question that I want to follow up with here, I think you've already touched upon it a little bit in your introduction, because, you know, I saw the smile on your face and I heard it in your voice when you talked about networking um, and why you like to network. But question is, what keeps you in the field? Or to put it another way, you know, what do you love most about this work that you do? What keeps you going? This is a really contentious one, actually, because for me, I, I've I, I've just gotten a new role that I'll be moving into. But prior to that, I was actually the last couple of years between personal things and looking at where I'm currently sitting and whether, whether or not I can progress in this field, because it does have some challenges in terms of progression pathways. I was actually at the point going, do I even stay in this field? Honestly, <laughs> I think Aww. I hear a bit of burnout. Um, yeah. I, I do want to raise it because I think it's useful to normalize it. And I think it's really Absolutely. important that we have these conversations around what do we need in our roles and how do we advocate for us as a profession? So I, I don't want to shy away from that. It, obviously that comes with risks when you're in a, a, a field with the, where you may be on a contract position. So I know that not everybody can do that, but so that's been a real issue for me over the last year or two is really working through some of those feelings and I think that's come from also from the pandemic in terms of seeing the, the snap back towards status quo and towards trying to push students back on campus maybe when we're still mm -hmm. kind of in the middle of a pandemic and oh, yeah. all of the work that I felt we were moving towards in terms of equity and inclusion and recognizing that people need different ways of learning uh, I felt in some ways was getting undone a little bit 
I think that it really depends on the institution you're working in, but there really does seem to be a little bit of uh, pushing for let's just return to normal. I don't think that's going to happen because lots of factors are coming into play, like AI, <laughs> that are really changing our field and changing education more broadly and being a real catalyst. So I think that in the end, even though there is a bit of a pushback, that's probably going to be short, short term and eventually there's going in the next few years going to have to be a real recognition that we can't keep doing things the same way. But that's been the challenge I've been working through and just figuring out what do I do and what do I want my role to look like and what do I want the next steps to be. And that's, uh, I guess, what keeps me in the field is really then being with people and being in places where I feel valued and recognised and where I can keep working towards championing good learning and teaching and championing equity and diversity and inclusion and accessibility because they're really dear to my heart. That's, uh, I think I started getting into that space when I started working in fully online learning and just realising the importance of good instructional design in the online learning space and how much online learning in particular, online and distance education can really open up education for people and the diversity of people who often are undertaking education and particularly as they're often people like working mums who are returning from a period of uh, being away from study and potentially being away from work and having to come back and and feeling sometimes quite uh, overwhelmed or insecure or not confident and being in that space and as a mum, a working mum here, I really uh, can sympathise with that. Um, I think that education is really transformative. And so for me, I guess I still stay in the field and I'm really passionate because I can see the transformative potential of it. I think no matter what, I'll still stay in the field in some form, regardless of where I move, because I'm really passionate about education. And even if it's just doing research or mentoring or supporting others or looking for other ways to just be involved on the sidelines, I'll still still be championing the power of education and advocating for the rights of teachers and trying to bring more visibility and respect to the field. So many people in these fields do so much work and it's often not valued enough in our society the same way nurses aren't valued as, as highly as they should be. The caring professions, unfortunately, often get a bit of a bad rap in that respect. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm very glad that, you know, you shared your honest insights into this question. Um, I feel very similarly. And, you know, I think instructional and learning designers, uh, we are also often in a carer position, right, or a caring position, whether you're supporting learners at an institution or learners in the corporate workforce, it is at the heart to me, I see it as a support role and I've worked in support roles before and I love offering support, but we also need support. And <laughs> it also frustrates me immensely when, you know, I see these pushes towards, ah, oh, back to campus and no more online learning, been there, done that. Like, no, I mean, think about all the other amazing things that came out of online learning pre and during pandemic. <laughs> um, so to, to try to keep a somewhat optimistic tone, and then I'll take us back down a little bit. <laughs> so we'll go on a little bit of a roller coaster. What is an idea, maybe a favorite idea or something that inspires you that you haven't gotten to do or try out yet? So something you might be looking forward to. 
this is where I'm really excited about the new role I'm going into actually, because I am coming into a team that is fully remote. They really champion and practice flexible and remote ways of working. I haven't been able to manage teams in that way before. So I'm really excited about stretching myself in terms of leading and managing and supporting teams from that perspective. I'm also really keen to be able to hopefully help with strategy a bit more in that space. And I'm really excited because I feel like uh, hopefully I'm in a place that understands my skill sets and values those and brings me into those conversations a bit more. So that's something that I'm really excited about. Uh, that's something that I, I want to be able to do a bit more of. And, and it gives me a chance to really start to practice some of the, some of my beliefs a bit more in terms of the way that we might support uh, you know, neurodivergent, uh, neurodivergence and uh, neurodiversity and the ways that we might practice, uh, you know, the same way we practice good learning and teaching for online, uh, taking those ways of working for remote and flexible, um, you know, working conditions and, and trying to apply a lot of those sorts of principles, bringing equity and inclusion into the workspace. So I'm really excited about that. And some other things that I've been able to do in my role recently that I'm hoping to do a bit more of have been really around programmatic design and curriculum design, which is a bit of a touchy subject when you're talking about me as a learning designer, because it's not my role to do that. There are academic developers who are charged with doing that. And I don't want to take away from their role or overstep my boundaries in that sense. Uh, so, but I guess something that I've been doing as part of ePortfolios is really trying to get people to recognize the value of ePortfolios across a course or a program and what that means for the student experience across the whole learning journey. And I think that those are the conversations we need to have more of. I'd love to do more work in that space because I see that as something that we as learning designers or instructional designers can really bring to the field in terms of understanding that student journey and how it's not just the conditions of learning or the, the conditions within a subject or a course, or whatever you want to call it, individually, which is often the, the space we work at is, is, you know, for a single topic or a single, um, you know, subject, a, a single course, but really talking about that whole experience and the fact that so much of what is outside of learning actually affects learning. And that can include uh, the way that students are affected by the personal lives and, and what I try and uh, really support through um, equity and inclusion, but it also is about the way that other processes can get in the way, like enrollment processes, if they're not well streamlined or, you know, course and other supports that may be around other academic supports, they really make a difference to the student experience and they can often make a difference to the way that students um, feel and perceive their learning. So I'd really love to be able to do more in that space. I think really just understanding that the whole student experience, I think there's, you know, there's risks in that in terms of trying to apply UX too broadly where it doesn't fit, but I would love to do more around just recognizing the learning journey and how do we support that a bit more holistically. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, I, I've been in very similar situations and I've, I've had 
experiences at both end of the spectrum where, you know, you come in and you try to do a little bit of curriculum development and immediately get shut down because you are not that subject matter expert or that academic, or um, someone says, yes, please build our whole curriculum. Here's some information. Good luck. And, you know, just don't ask me too many questions. I'm busy. <laughs> so what you shared about, you know, like the, the silos, or I'm not sure if this is my job. Um, I definitely relate to that. And I really hope that your future colleagues are open to learning from you because what you shared about that holistic student experience, you know, it is more than just the topics, the things that we're going to learn, um, who you are as a person really comes into that and life experiences of our students, especially those varied neurodiverse, um, really, really diverse in so many different ways experiences, right? Like, I don't know, when I was in college, which was a bit ago, um, students tended to look more the same. And I'm really, really glad that that keeps changing. And, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but as an undergraduate, we made fun of that old person auditing the class sitting in the back of the room. And now I'm like, oh, I want to be that person's friend or I want to be that person and not get made fun of by the younger college students. So yeah, just bringing your whole self to learning. Um, I'm very excited for you to to do that in your new role and excited for all the things that you're excited about. Um, so let's go back down again, <laughs> emotionally, <laughs> or maybe a little bit more angry. Um, what needs to change about learning design? If, if you could think of one or two things, maybe. I love how you've uh, stipulated. Just keep it to one or two things, Kate, because <laughs> I know that I will we both go have off a lot. on a tangent. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot of emotions yeah. there. Uh, I think it really depends on what you're talking about. Uh, there's there's two sides to that. One is obviously what would I love to change about education, which I've obviously already touched on. So I won't talk too much to that now. What needs to change in learning design? I think in Australia in particular, we are a very new field. We're pretty immature compared to say the US where there are much more, there's more of a history there, they, you know, for better or worse. Um, you know, I think the history in the US comes from, you know, army training and sometimes people look down on that, but uh, there is a more mature environment in terms of minimum qualifications for people and having that space worked out in terms of what skill sets people should have coming in and I think that that's still a bit of a, a loose space where we are and that leads to some tensions in terms of you know not understanding the roles lack of role clarity um, tensions across departments particularly where we're in competition with other roles that are similar so I really think there needs to be a bit more done in terms of clarifying who we are what we can and can do, how we can work best together and leverage each other. I wish there was a bit less competition or, you know, we were seen less as the techies, but, uh, you know, that's something that we just have to keep chipping away at. It's something that I care less about with academic teaching staff because for them it's really I just need support and I'm just going to contact someone and if it comes through IT, then I just think that they're the IT person and that makes complete sense to me. It's more where we're working with other similar departments and they still see us as the techies and we can't necessarily work together. We're in competition with each other, which I just think is, 
I just think it's silly. I just think it's inefficient. Totally. If we're an institution, <laughs> you know, we, we, it, it just means we're limiting ourselves and in terms of what we can actually achieve with the limited number of people and resourcing we have available. I just think that, I think it's silly. And also there means that people don't necessarily get the opportunities that they may have to move across and up. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd really love to see more conversations and more work done around let's look at like what are the roles, what are the unique value propositions that these roles bring that are different and unique to each other versus what are the similarities so that we can at least clarify you know, whether we need all these roles in the space. And, and because really you may say, oh, actually we don't need leading designers. Academic developers could do that work and that's fine. And I know some people who want to have that conversation and that's, you know, or see them as similar roles and we, you know, think about them as subsets or we can look at, okay, well, what actually, what are the real kind of differences here? Because I think that there are specific skill sets that we bring that are really very unique to our roles that uh, other people don't necessarily recognize and that we don't necessarily get to practice. And if we really doubled down on those, we'd also be able to get better maturity in the space in terms of the quality of work and the quality and skill sets, um, you know, in terms of really training and supporting people so that they, you know, we didn't have the same kind of variation in quality across the field so if we could really start to talk about you know how do we sit in this space how do we work together where do these roles sit in relation to each other how do we best support those roles what does it mean for progression pathways what does it mean for the kind of work that we might want to do in future what does it mean for really supporting uh, academic and institutional goals what might it mean for research in the field I'd really love to have more of those sorts of conversations uh, I'm so inspired by that and actually <laughs> I just want to make your vision come true because that's sadly one of the things that got me to move outside of higher education as a learning designer or back then I was an instructional technologist and look for opportunities in corporate um, because I kind of got in trouble a few times when I just whispered the word pedagogy <laughs> and you know the faculty development team would say oh no you are it stay in your lane and i even remember sitting with a few faculty who i would consult with about online technology and how to use it whether in the classroom or for a fully online class um and they might start complaining about it or bad mouthing it and i would say hey actually i am in it <laughs> so let's let's back down a little bit and and appreciate the support that our IT colleagues give us. So absolutely, I think um, there's a lot of role confusion and lack of clarity, and we could collaborate and work together so much better. So I really hope we get there. And I'm confident we will if you and I keep advocating for it and, you know, talking about it loudly on podcasts <laughs> like this one. Yeah. And I, and I do want to make the point that often it's not like I have some really amazing working relationships with many educational technologists, many academic developers, you know, so it's not necessarily individuals. I have oh, yeah. great relationships with individuals and we all actually, a lot of us want to collaborate. It's just that the structures that we're often working within don't necessarily allow that to happen. And that is also a byproduct with the fact that everybody is competing for the same amount of funding and resourcing and having to make a case for why we, you know, well, managers have to make a case for why do you keep my team over this other team when, the, when people are making cuts and it makes it really hard to then uh, have 
good working relationships if you're in similar fields and similar roles. It's like, well, why do we have three of what on paper might sound like the same role? And then we don't talk about, okay, are they actually the same role? Are they not? When is it useful to bring in each of these roles for different purposes? And what can they actually bring specifically to support good quality outputs or good quality outcomes in terms of learning and teaching? So, yeah, I think that those conversations really need to be had because there's, there's different skill sets and very different lenses that each bring. And, you know, the, there's things that, uh, you know, the same way that I would love to be able to do certain things and I don't want to be able to do or would like to do other things less. Uh, I'm, I know that academic developers and educational technologists also have those concerns, particularly around um, things like the way that project management occurs and whether that should be part of people's roles. Uh, in academic development, it's very much about building relationships with individual academics and really mentoring them and being able to do that in a safe space, at least from what I've gathered, and I'm not trying to talk for academic developers because they're going to do that better than me. But in that sense, uh, then being told that you actually have to project manage and manage, you know, manage projects to deadlines, that potentially completely undermines your relationship building goals. So there's, you know, there's just some of those role specifics that we don't get into and talk about, well, what do those tensions mean in practice? just even in terms of the types of things we get asked to do from, you know, from above or as part of initiatives and projects and the way that those, those lines are carved up, <laughs> those lines in the sand are drawn. That, and what does that even mean for what we're able to produce and, and the way that we're able to build relationships and the kind of, um, you know, outcomes and goals that we're working towards? Yeah, absolutely. I really think we should be having those conversations. And so any listeners out there are, are thinking, oh, this sounds a little bit too familiar to me, you know, see what you can maybe do tomorrow or next <laughs> week or in this upcoming month um, to just have some conversations with the folks that you work with. I've gone from being the one person who kind of does all the instructional design to now I'm looking forward to joining a team where I don't have to do it all. And, you know, I really think that that strong collaboration is going to be a space where I learn from others and I can contribute. And yeah, it's just something that I'm very much looking forward to. <laughs> so Ooh. to wrap up, I'm going to ask you the potato question, and then I'm going to have you pick <laughs> another random question from the random question list. So the potato question, which if you were just listening to get to the potato question, here it is. Um, but also you should go back and listen to the whole thing because Kate is amazing. Kate, would you rather be a potato and eat whatever you wanted for the rest of your life? Or would you rather be anything you wanted and only eat potatoes? <laughs> oh, see, as someone who has a, a weird food intolerance where I can't oh, no. eat a lot of things. <laughs> This is a this is an interesting question because it speaks to okay if I could you know do I want to be able to eat anything I want? Um, it also I guess depends on you know as a potato can I still do the work that I currently do or am I sitting as a potato? So it's a you know is it just physically that I am affected or is it that uh, my whole reason for being gets uh, you know changed? So um, but then you know I'm also like well if I can still eat whatever I want and I'm a potato, then, you know, 
if I could still get around and it meant really pushing, I guess, accessibility and accommodations, then I don't know. So yeah, I think let's imagine over- a, a potato friendly future <laughs> where, you know, potatoes are able to live and work in society. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, the draw to be able to eat whatever I want would be great. Um, I think that uh, regardless, like if we're taking a serious note, all of that question just speaks to uh, that, you know, ideally society is set up where we could, you know, we could have a fulfilling life either way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So if I was going to stick stick to having to eat potatoes, that they weren't just boring, bland things like I currently deal with with no food intolerance, uh, or, you know, if I was stuck as a potato, that the, the structures around me could support me better to do that. So, um, you know, uh, I, I'm a bit of a couch potato anyway these days, so I'd probably say I'd love to be a potato and eat whatever I want just so I don't have to kind of constantly monitor things the way I do now. But, um, you know, I, that, that assumes that people are going to, like, not look at me weird being a potato. <laughs> well, I would, I would be a potato with you because I, I love potatoes, but I would also get bored of them, I think, after, like, one week, so definitely need a little bit of variety and you know people can make fun of us potatoes but we know that we can eat whatever we want so it's not going to bother us what what they think of us potatoes <laughs> I think that I mean you're probably a bit like me in that we you know we both got into these fields because we like the variety yeah and you know and and chances are like to be honest I'm probably you know uh undiagnosed ADHD somewhere <laughs> and so you know recognizing that variety and having that dopamine hit is uh, really important and if you were stuck eating the same thing every day it would probably get very very boring so oh yes uh, yeah for that reason (laughs) sometimes you know those constraints really push people to be creative so I think like you could make potato flour and make well I guess you would need other ingredients for baked goods but anyway I'll move beyond the potato question (laughs) could you please Pick a random number between one and 14. And that is going to be the last question I ask you. I'll go with three. Three. Okay. This is my lucky number. <laughs> Ooh. So I really want to hear your answer to this one. What is a skill you learned and then never used? And that's oh. kind of a hard one. Cause I feel like if you learned it, you hopefully would have used it at least once. Um, so maybe you never used it or you just used it when you were learning it and then poof, no more. Yeah. I mean, I can talk about skill. I can talk about skills that I wish I'd learned a little bit, or I feel like I never learned well. So I'm terrible with maths. I am terrible with maths. Uh, I wish I was better at maths. Uh, I really struggled to learn my times tables, you know, even up to grade six. Um, So I, you know, I've just really struggled. And then coming into teaching, uh, you know, because I've kind of shied away from maths and sciences, but I, I, you know, my, my background's in media production. And I came in to do my teaching rounds when I was becoming a secondary teacher and I'm going into these classes and they're doing physics. And I'm like, Oh my God, like, A, it's really interesting, but B, you know, for someone who's come from doing, you know, animation, it's like, all of those principles apply. You're like, you've got to know how gravity works, how it affects the body. You know, um, there's, you know, gestalt principles in terms of the way that, you know, the way that light works. And then just like, 
all of this stuff is so interesting and I wish I knew these things better and I wish that I was better at maths and sciences. So I'm lucky that my kid is a bit better in that score. She really loves Number Blocks, the TV show. She got into that on her own and so she already knows a couple of times tables uh, at the age of five and so I'm really excited by the fact that she's probably going to be better at it than me very soon. <laughs> Um, that worries me because then I can't help her, but uh, we'll just have to, you know, get other supports in so that she can keep um, keep progressing in that way. But, yeah, I really wish that I had uh, spent more time in that. I think every, lots of people can relate, though, in terms of, either, you, you know, if you're in the wrong environments where maybe you get a bad teacher or, you know, you just struggle with the way that something's been communicated and taught to you and you, it just doesn't, click for whatever reason and if you can't find another way through or another way for it to be described and brought in that makes sense to you and makes sense to your own mental maps and it just it just makes it really hard so I, I think it also all comes back to the way that we learn and so I find that also really infinitely interesting. Oh yeah I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while because I too struggle with math a little bit with science but more so with math um, and that's why I need you know 20 websites to double check the time to make sure we're actually meeting um, at whatever it is <laughs> right now. But yeah, I also bet that your daughter is better than I am right now. And the only reason I still remember my times tables is because I had one math teacher who just came up with songs. And, and so whenever I think, you know, seven times six or whatever, I, I still pl play the song in my head. Um, and, and that's what it takes. But for me, it's also like math and science. Well, my husband is great at both, so I can just ask him. <laughs> and if he's gone, I'll say, well, ask my husband later or I'll Google it. Um, but to me, it's so different from the stuff that I was really interested in growing up, like writing and foreign languages and arts and just anything creative. Cause like, well, two and two is four. What if it's not? What if tomorrow it's five? What if you're wrong? You know, just this, there's always one answer. Um, those types of fields are difficult for me because I'm like, well, what if they're wrong? <laughs> I think for me, it's it was so much rote learning and I just mm. couldn't find that interesting. Uh, and again, like that's where number blocks, uh, if people are struggling or looking for things for their kids, they use songs. And I think that's what really sticks uh, coming at it from that perspective. But yeah, I'm the same as you. I learned, I think I, I learned about four or five languages <laughs> when I was at school because that was, I just collected them. Uh, that was my thing to keep me out of trouble Amazing. Uh, in, a, <laughs> in a regional city where there wasn't a lot to do. So for me, yeah, that was my kind of bent was going down arts and languages and so I you know I, I really love all of that and now I'm getting into music later later in life um, but yeah I think finding ways to 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 get things to stick and in ways that uh, you know just recognizing that it's not just about the way that you teach but also the way that you can get people motivated and interested and engaged like it's so much of doing the you know both the the delivery versus the you know the packaging yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean Absolutely. All right. Well, this was wonderful. And the time flew by. Um, I hope that folks reach out to you after this, because I really find your story fascinating. I'm so glad we're friends. Um, can you let people know where to find you if they'd like to connect with you? Yeah, sure. I'm still on Twitter uh, until that burns down. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. 
uh, and I'm also in Teladvisors. So if you're looking for Teladvisors um, or Ascolite, which is our Australian Society for Computers in uh, Integrating Technology and Learning or something like that, um, something along those lines, uh, I'm pretty visible in that space along with the Learning Design Special Interest Group. So uh, Twitter, I'm Kate Video. Um, LinkedIn, you can probably just search me. Um, uh, I won't give out my email address because I already get enough spam and I'm sometimes changing jobs that oh, it yeah. never <laughs> But yeah, people will be able to find me, I'm sure. Um, and then, yeah, there's other things around. I did a podcast for somebody else. Uh, but yeah, come and I'm going to probably try and change my LinkedIn so that people can follow me at some point because <laughs> I already pay for the membership. I might as well get the use of it. So, um, you know, when I get a little bit more time and headspace, I'll start promoting that more um, and putting things out. Um, there's also, I still need to do it. <laughs> I haven't done it yet, but we, we've got a book club uh, that we're working on. Um, That's right. I, I forgot about that already. <laughs> I sent out, a, I need to send out another message around that. I went to do it a couple of days ago um, to read Design Justice by Sasha Cassandra Chock. Um so that's another space where um, that's been pub publicized on Twitter. I think the hashtag we're using is Design Justice Book Club. So, yeah, just come and find me on there. Um, and uh, I'm sure, you know, people will see me at various online conferences <laughs> around the place. I tend to be pretty active. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Kate. This was wonderful. And, uh, yeah, I will see you online as always. <laughs> Take Thanks care. Thanks so much, Claire. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Um, you want to do the question hat? Uh, sure, but I don't have the question hat. You have the question have hat. The question. Yes. Just to again, be, uh, for because this is not a video, um, the question hat looks exactly like what you'd imagine the sorting hat would look like, um, except better, because yeah. it's filled with questions definitely something like Gandalf left at his friend's place after a nice uh, brunch. Alrighty. But was it Bilbo's house? Was it a Bilbo <laughs> brunch or did he go into one, uh, one of his other Hobbit friends' houses? Because Bilbo makes a nice brunch. Well, Bilbo's brunch is, is legendary, I think. Uh, <laughs> Bilbo's brunch sounds like a fun, a fun little restaurant somewhere. I don't know. When we're all retired, maybe that's what we'll what? open together. Formerly Secret Society of Instructional Designers, now Secret Society of Bilbo's Brunchers. There it is. Okay, so we are going to reach into our question hat. We are going to pull out a random question. I do not remember what these questions are, so this is going to come out as new. They are mostly instructional design related. They may be something weird, um, but let's see what we got. Okay. So, None of them have been AI generated. Oh, uh, I think Clea might have generated some of them through AI. <laughs> I'm not. Or is Clea secretly an AI that she has convinced us and passed a very, very sophisticated Turing test? I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past her. Honestly, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. So, what is one thing you'd change about this job? Hmm. Is it hard to think of one, or hard to think of only one? So, one thing I would change is just. I don't know how to put this, but like the amount of bureaucracy it just takes to get anything new done. Like you can't just say, this is a new bit of research. This is a new strategy that like I think is valuable because the research is shown and I want to 
test it because we're scientists in a way and we want to test it, see if it's effective and then, you know, grow from there. And to get it approved, you need to submit it to your boss who submits it to their boss who submits it to their boss who maybe sits on it for eight months. Um, because again, we're a massive bureaucracy. We don't have enough people to like give each thing the due thought it needs. Um, and if it involves money, involves buying something, add at least a year to anything I've just said. So yeah. like, it's just, it makes it, and then by the time things get approved, um, the technology is obsolete and, you know, it's not valuable anyway. It's not valuable anymore. The only time that I have not seen this happen was during COVID where they were like, well, we can't spend six to eight months thinking on, will this be useful or will this be necessary to help people learn better online? Because everyone's online. That's not an option. So I have never seen them move forward with anything as quickly as during COVID. Um, and even then that took, I think three months, four months. Uh, let's see, it came in August, five months. And that is the quickest I've ever seen them move forward on anything. Like in a sense, I understand we're a massive bureaucracy, we're a state institution, things take time. But on the other hand, in terms of actually getting, making online learning, making learning more effective, launching initiatives, it's um, painfully slow. So that's one thing I'd change. Yeah, I mean, I, I can agree that I think there. I think some of that's environmental, but I, I don't know if it's if it's just higher ed or if there's other areas where that's it's harder to do things um, differently or experiment or or anything. Um, I don't know. I kind of have two, and I'm trying to debate if I should just do both of them or only one. So I'm going to start with and say like I wish there was more agreement about what the job meant and what the job was. Because I know like there's some intellectual ideas about like what an instructional designer is, what an instructional technologist is, what a HR, you know, program developer is or something like that. Um, what a corporate um, e-learning producer is or, or anything like that. And I think theoretically these are different jobs, but that's only within the organization. Like if you go and look at another place there may be so so much crossover between like an e-learning developer and an instructional designer at different organizations that they're practically the same job. So I wish there was like some more agreement about like what went into those things. Cause like it often I find like when you're you're called an instructional designer, and in most I think academic environments. Instructional designer, instructional technologist are essentially the same job. It just kind of depends on which area you're situated in. And so I've always liked to use instructional designer more because I think it's more encompassing. And I think it puts a little bit more emphasis on the idea that we're not just highlighting benefits of a technology or showing people how to use it. We're also integrating it into a larger um, idea of how it works within a, a learning environment and a, and, a, and a learning structure. And the actual, the idea of like, we create something and then we explore which technologies are most useful for the thing we've created, not kind of, here's the technologies we know, how do you want to put it in the thing that you've already made? And I think the, the former is a better strategy overall. So I guess I'd get more clarification and I guess I would be curious if we are going to have these separate titles, should they only work in tandem with each other if you're going to separate them out? 
I think often they get conflated is because we don't have enough people to do all of the stuff. So like I've seen some organizations that have like instructional designers and instructional technologists. Those feel like very separate roles, but some are just like all instructional designers or all instructional technologists. And that's where I think it starts to get like murky. And then I'll, I, I'll, I'll end here. It's just like, I don't think we ever have enough people to actually meet the needs of the organization or very rarely. Um, I think they have strategies and they get a couple people and then expect them to help with everything. And it becomes very difficult. I, I agree. Experience with that. <laughs> um, and like, I think it's most places I've seen that only have one, whatever their title is, they do basically the same of like figuring out technology. And mm -hmm. when people hear my title, which is instructional technologist, they're like, and then sometimes they're surprised when I say sometimes the best technology is no technology because what really matters is effective pedagogy and will technology help us get there? Not let's figure out, just, just throw as much technology at the wall and see what it sticks. Like I never, I know this is a thing, like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing if it sticks to tell if it's done. Who's ruining their walls with spaghetti? <laughs> and also, are you going to eat that spaghetti? Um. Anyway, so like I remember early in my career, I was talking to somebody about like what I did and their response was like, no offense, but I don't think we should be replacing teachers with computers. Like, of course, like, yeah, I'm sorry to offend your entire job. And I was like, good news. No one is thinking that. So, and then as I said it, I know in my brain, some administrator was like, wait, that was an option. Um, <laughs> so like, it's just, it really, I think there's a huge misunderstanding about what it means. And I think I agree with you that some clarity uh, would be helpful or maybe just let people pick their job titles based on what they actually do instead of what, like I've met instructional designers that have significantly more technology duties and instructional technologists who are, who have never touched technology a day in their lives. More like yeah. they put things online, but their main focus is understanding how teaching and learning works well in that online environment so like none of this makes a lot of sense so sense would be good it gets confusing and it, it makes it difficult sometimes to go into different roles because sometimes or different positions or different organizations because like you've been hyper focused sometimes you've been hyper focused on one area and then they ask you to do a bunch of different stuff and you don't know how to do it and so you can only stay at your current position or you've been asked to do everything so you don't have like the skill set to really drill down into like the couple areas that one place wants you to to focus on. So I don't know. It'd be it'd be nice to get if we had some sort of clarification. I don't I think that's going to be very unlikely unless we start asking for certification or, you know, standardization in terms of knowledge for certain roles. You know, like I'm a certified instructional designer. And those are the only people that can, you know, work on courses. But that also seems unlikely. Also, because then, like, who's running that certification process? Yeah. And, like, if somebody has, like, a degree in it, do you then require them to get a certification? Or is it going to be, like, a teacher where getting that certification is built in to getting that degree? Yeah. Or is it going to be, like, a doctor where you can have a degree and you may not be able to practice anywhere if you don't get a residency. I, I know a doctor. Actually, he passed his residency. 
like fully past his residency and said, you know what I want to be is I want to be a rabbi. And then he went to be a rabbi. And then he's like, okay, did that for 20 years. Now I'm going to be a biomedical ethics researcher. And we're like, all right. So like this guy is just like, had a lot of fun careers, but I cannot imagine so many careers so diametrically different than those. <laughs> but, you know. Well, it's nice that he got out there and did some stuff. Okay. Well, I think we're going to wrap up here. Um, thank you uh, for listening to the program today. I want to thank Rachel for joining uh, me. And we will be back here next time. We're going to talk more about, like, so, again, podcast is... What are all the random stuff you just kind of got to know to be an instructional designer that makes you feel like there's a secret society that nobody's talking about? So today we talked about like how a lot of the things are overlapping and not making sense. And also, uh, you know, the new big shiny thing on the market that you might be coming into as an instructional designer and being like, oh, wow, this is the new thing. You know, we'll see. We're checking back in a year to see is this going to be actually be that disruptive force that it claims to so thank you for joining us for whenever or wherever you are all right see you everybody questions or comments can be sent to secret society otid at gmail.com that's secret society otid at gmail.com mm-hmm.